Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Professor Susanna Lipscomb is a historian and a television presenter and a host of the podcast, Not Just the Tudors, which explores the breadth and diversity of life in the past. She's joining me for a discussion of how we explore the past and what we need to do better. Welcome to Future Imperfect. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Future Imperfect. I'm very excited. I have a professor, Professor Susanna Lipscomb here. We are going to talk about medieval women in particular. It's an area that I think should be studied more. Let's face it, over half the population was female in the medieval period, and I don't think they get the representation they deserve. So I'm delighted to welcome her here. Susanna, would you introduce yourself and maybe mention some of your books and works that people might want to refer to if they want to look into your work more? So I am a historian chiefly of the 16th century. I am an emeritus professor at the University of Roehampton and fellow of the Royal Historical Society. I have a column that I write for History Today and I'm a host of a podcast called Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. And I've written books about Henry VIII and about witchcraft and about women in 16th century France. So it touches on some of my interests about kind of religious and gender and social history and political history in the period. And made television programmes as well. That's the other thing I suppose I ought to say. You probably should. Um, Henry VIII, now that's an interesting historical figure that many people will have heard about. And there's an awful lot of I don't know how real some of the stories are, but I think he was a, quite a larger-than-life character anyway. I mean, literally larger-than-life. I've, I've seen some of his armour in various museums at the Royal Armouries, and it, he was physically a very big man later on in life. And he was quite tall by the standards of the time. His attitude towards women, though, his famous number of wives that we learn at school. Do you want to talk a little bit more about him and whether that's perhaps an introduction into the whole kind of late medieval, it's Tudor, but late medieval women's position in society. You're right about the height. He was six foot two, one or two at a time when most men, his sort of average height was five foot seven. 
and also about the size. The armour is actually very useful in terms of knowing about Henry's size. It's one of the chief ways we can have kind of statistics of measurements of it. So we know that his waist measurement went from 37 inches to 54 inches, according to his armour <laughs> measurement. So, you know, it's a massive increase. Um, and he was a big man, certainly by the standards of the time. Henry VIII and women. Interesting. So I suspect that there's a surprising thing to know about Henry VIII, which is that he was actually quite a romantic. One of Henry's main problems, really, was that he wanted to be in love with the women that he married. That was a problem in terms of how marriages worked in the early 16th century and what they were intended to do. And he was in love with Catherine of Aragon, his first wife, desperately in love with her by the accounts of the time. She also was a good political and diplomatic match. But it was when he fell out of love with her, and of course, as we all know, you know, that she had given birth many times, had had many pregnancies, but hadn't had a son. And Henry thought that he needed one. So that's part of it as well. And his relationship with the church, all these things conspire so that when he falls in love with somebody else, he thinks that it's right to marry them. Anne Boleyn. And the same is true of later wives. I mean, the problem with Anne of Cleves was that he wasn't in love with her and he thought he ought to be in love with his wife. So actually, the sort of chief problem about Henry and women isn't quite so much that he is the sort of terrible womanizer who's having all these affairs and treating women terribly. His problem is actually that he feels he ought to be in love with them. Which is fascinating. It's quite a progressive perspective from a male leader, war leader, somebody who fights. Was that an unusual perspective at the time from what we know? Is, is that likely to have been something that was more common than we think? Because it strikes me that a king would be brought up to expect sort of dynastic professional marriages, if you like. And given what I know about some of the medieval kings, they had an awful lot of lovers and paramours and relationships outside the marriage itself. The marriage was the official relationship and was to do with passing on wealth and heredity. But they didn't seem to sort of back away from the idea of having actual lovers and having an emotional relationship. But he seems to want to entwine the two. Do you feel that was relatively unusual for the time? That's right. I wouldn't say that it was progressive, but we might consider it modern. We expect our partners to be able to do all of these things, which, you know, according to historical standards, is to put a lot of responsibility on one person. Because, as you say, they tended to have <laughs> lovers and, you know, there, there was a distinction between the marriage relationship and necessarily that being a source of, of love. Although things are different, I think, if we're thinking about different levels of society. And for monarchs, there was a particular responsibility in terms of meeting kind of political and dynastic and diplomatic needs in marriage. I don't think that Henry VIII's attitude was as it was because he was progressive. I think it was because he was kind of selfish. He cared about his own pleasure. He cared about his own happiness. He was in love with being in love. That was the idea. And the, 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 the women, he felt there was no point being married to somebody unless you were in love with them. I think that's right. I think that he felt that that was what he could expect of marriage. I mean, he's, certain statements he made about how you know, a man's health and so much of his well-being depended on his wife suggests that he did think it was crucially important. Mm. You talked about some of the less sort of wealthy people. Is it possible that the lower down, inverted commas, the lower down the social ladder you go, the more that marriages were about love and companionship, 
and less about dynastic power and diplomacy. It strikes me that's quite likely. I mean, if you're a subsistence farmer, a peasant, I suppose you could marry if you wanted more land. Maybe there is that still going on there. But do you think it's more likely, more common for ordinary people? Yes. I mean, so the hypothesis you give could be turned on its head to say that if you're poor, money probably matters more. Mm -hmm. In my experience of working on the records of ordinary people, particularly women in 16th century France, so these are people sort of artisans, bakers, butchers and their wives, I found that there is a distinction between what the young feel. So the young feel they ought to be able to choose somebody that they want and often what their parents are saying. And in fact, under French law, later in the 16th century, you have to have the consent of a parent. It becomes a legal necessity, or you can be charged with crimes of rapt, which is kind of rape, but by elopement. So the young do seem to have a sense of their own wishes being taken into account. And I think quite a lot of parents did take wishes into account. But also, there are clearly many other things determining who you marry. So quite often, people are marrying within their own trade, for example. A daughter of a glover is likely to marry a glover, someone who makes gloves, because women worked. Right? They worked in the trade of the household. Largely, there are also women, um, there's increasing evidence that women, particularly by the 17th century, are training in their own trades and you know, going through their own apprenticeships. They're definitely happening in the 17th century. It's harder to know how much that's happening in the 16th century. But I think that it is quite normal for a marriage to be one that a woman goes to it equipped with the skills that her husband's going to need her to have. So they're marrying within their trade. And so therefore, there's a limited number of sons who might be available in that local town, in that trade, etc. So I think there is more to it than love. And I think our ideas about love are also, you know, romantic love is a way of seeing the world that is perhaps quite modern. Obviously, we have nice medieval roots if we think about the troubadours. But I think liking someone and searching for companionship might be more kind of historical ways of thinking about these things. More the thing, yeah. more the thing. It was interesting you brought up the troubadour tradition because a lot of the romantic entanglements in those stories are often more powerful because they're unrequited or forbidden or can never happen. It's almost as if these things are sort of mythical, unobtainable, and that's part of the the attractiveness that you actually can't marry this person, you can't be with that person, it doesn't mean you can't love them deeply and desire them. It's fascinating what that says about aspects of humanity. What you can't obtain is almost more valuable than what you can obtain. Yeah, I think it says quite a lot about male sexuality and the thrill of the chase. I mean, it's certainly still a thing in the 16th century, the courtly love culture you know, I did an interview the other day with Susan Brigden, who wrote a brilliant book about Sir Thomas Wyatt, one of the most brilliant poets at the court of Henry VIII. And his poems, many of them do conform to that courtly love convention of the suffering lover and the scornful, dismissive beloved. And, you know, they're sort of continually moaning and complaining about her not paying him necessary attention. But that's also part of the game. I mean, this is kind of a game of courtly love by the 16th century. And right. men pick a woman whom they serve 
in the language of courtly love. And that's the one to whom they write their poetry and they sing their songs and they give their gifts. And all she has to do is respond with kindness. And that's a way of sublimating erotic desire at the court where you've got a thousand men and 200 women. You've got to do something. These men are, you know, generally speaking, between the ages of 15 and 24 or something. You know, they're, they're, they're pretty young. So it's a, it's a channeling mechanism. But it's interesting to consider the extent to which it was a reality beyond this kind of convention. Mm, yes. The thing about courtly love is that it's ambiguous and you don't know whether this somebody, the lover, loves his beloved or if he's just pretending to. And that's the whole sort of joy of the game. Yes, it's sort of almost like pretentious role-playing or whatever. But I was going to ask you about researching women's lives is fraught with problems of access of data, I would think, because an awful lot of records were kept by men, and in particular by ecclesiastical men who have their own issues around women's sexuality and even you know, thinking women should be kind of kept at bay and not mentioned or not thought about as part of their religious lives. Have you managed to sort of uncover the data that you need to study this sort of fascinating aspect of society? You're absolutely right. It's a problem. Women in the period I work on were largely illiterate. So whilst I'm writing about Henry VIII's queens, I've got, in some cases, letters that they've written. I've got records of their involvement in patronage. I've got, you know, I've got other people reflecting on them, ambassadorial reports, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. But for the vast majority of women who ever lived had no literacy and kept no records. There were no diaries or letters or, you know, notions of their own thoughts. They tended not to own that much. They don't have many wills. In courts, they were often covered by their husbands, something called femme coverture. When they were married, that meant they couldn't testify. So we don't get them testifying before courts. So there are real challenges in finding the voices of women before the 18th century. But... In my experience, you can, mediated and curtailed, but you can hear them. So the way that I have done it is that when I was working on women in 16th century France, I was working through, strangely enough, court, church court records, ecclesiastical records, but records of the Protestant church. So many Catholic women's stories were told in the secrecy of the confessional to a priest and never written down. But when people converted to Protestantism, and in some cases I have Catholic women also bringing their stories to this church court, which is called a consistory, the men of the consistory, the scribe of the consistory, wrote down what women said. This is very unusual by comparison to courts at the time. And it was also free to approach. So we have all sorts of stories from servants and from the lowly. And they are challenging authority structures, which is fascinating because the consistory itself has been set up to ensure moral probity among the Protestants. And moral probity in the 16th century means controlling women, because women are considered to be the source of sexual sin. But we have cases where women who are made servants bring, you know, rape charges against their employers in ways that they could never have testified before a law court and in ways which, you know, rape would never have been considered to have happened unless a woman has sort of been forcefully trying to resist throughout the entire thing. It's very difficult to prove. Mm. And so as a result of telling these stories, we get lots of information into women's lives. We get stories about the context and the relationships. 
And this has been found by other historians who've worked with court records, for example, on witchcraft trials, where women who are accused of witchcraft are testifying to the circumstances of their lives. They may well be, in that case, being tortured, and they may be confessing to all manner of fantastical things. But along the way, they're going to tell us a lot about quotidian life. And if one can read that sort of evidence against the grain, you get at that sort of information. But you do have to interpret it and you have to look between the words to to quite a large extent, I would guess, you know. Not between the words, but you have to read against the preoccupations and the purpose for which the records were created. Hmm. I mean, how does that compare if you were studying men's lives at the same period? I mean, are we talking about vast difference or is it still a substantial difference, but it's not that much? I think for men of a certain economic status then actually trying to access their lives, you have to use the same sort of approach as looking for women in the archives. Mm -hmm. Uh, Sure, I can tell you a lot about those who were big at court and who were nobility or who were particularly influential, but the vast majority of men, of course, were illiterate as well. Um, The vast majority of men are not leaving great records to history. And so one is working again from archival fragments. So I, I think that it depends on on what you're asking. You know, it depends who you're trying to find. Well, this is interesting because in a largely agrarian population, I don't know how much from the 15th to the 16th century things transformed, but I imagine the vast bulk of the population was, was still living and working on the land. Is that fair to say? Yes, it is a period of urbanisation. London grows from about 60,000 in records we have from 1524 to about 200,000 by 1600, and then is doubling again over the course of the 17th century, or more than doubling. But still, I'd say it's something like 95% of people still live in rural societies and are still living in communities of around 400 people. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So their voices are very difficult. I suppose archaeology can help us uncover some aspects of it, but in terms of their thoughts and their 
desires and their hopes and dreams. There's very little of that for 90% of the population of the country, which is, yes. is, is quite shocking when you think about how much is just missing from our understanding of the period that we're talking about. Yes, that's right. It gives you such a sense of how skewed the picture we have is and how skewed it is towards the elite. Hmm. And that interiority is very, very hard to access. I mean, it's actually hard to access even for people we know well. I mean, Anne Boleyn, I've written about a lot and writing about again. And you'd think, surely, this most famous of women, we would know her inmost thoughts. We really don't. Hmm. Even Henry VIII, I'd go so far as to say that we don't know many of his inmost thoughts. We judge it on the basis of his actions, what he's reported as having said. But he himself didn't leave any nice diaries that we can plunder. And even, of course, diaries are a construct and we all, you know, as much as we curate our social media presence, people curated their diaries. So how you get at, you know, someone else's interior world is a real question for a historian. Mm. I was trying to compare how rich people are today, your average person today, with how rich people were back in medieval periods around 13th, 14th century. And I was looking through some of the sort of data that's left behind, you know, what people leave in their wills. And some of it's rather shockingly not very much. I mean, uh, there might be two sets of clothes, there might be a best pair of shoes, two bowls, uh, a horn spoon. And I'm thinking, this is minuscule compared to what somebody even of very modest means has today. I mean, you know, talking about having a bed was a thing that people would pass down and would be left in their will. And I always find it quite shocking because people ask me, how much would it cost to buy a suit of armour back then? And the price of things and the value of things is really hard to explain to modern people because there was so much less of everything back then. How much does a destrier cost? Well, we actually know, you know, sometimes they were 50 pounds. But what could 50 pounds buy you? Well, an awful lot. That's huge. But can it be translated across into how much a really fancy sports car would cost today? And possibly, yes. Possibly it's even more than that. Maybe it's like a medium-sized yacht you know maybe you're talking about a couple of million quid and you know the difference between the rich and the poor and their spending ability and what there was to even buy is quite shocking how far we've come the tudor period though is definitely a period of change isn't it and revolution it's why we talk about the medieval and then the tudor were women's lives changing significantly from your studies as far as you could tell or is it a very very slow progress this is kind of a huge question. So I'd say that oh, sorry, everybody, sorry. <laughs> everybody's lives were changing insofar as this is a period of high inflation. So over the course of the 16th century, the price of bread is rising a great deal. And this is because the population is increasing, um, because there are many very bad years where harvests fail. The 1590s, for example, are a very terrible time where you have basically a sort of four years of rain. And so there is, you know, terrible famine as a result of that. And there are also sort of changing practices with regard to land holding, which sounds sort of dreadfully dull, but it means that it affects people's lives and people who've had a kind of customary rent that they have expected to pay now are being put on contractual rents. We all consider this to be perfectly normal, but that where rents could increase year after year. And they thought that this was the Lord stealing the land from them. And they thought that about, of course, the enclosing of common lands, which is something else that happened, which could spell the difference between survival and not. You know, if you don't have a place where you can go and graze your cow or you can't forage for berries and you can't gather firewood, that's going to make a difference. So everybody's lives are getting harder. And from about 1560, 
we have what's known as the little ice age where temperatures are dropping dramatically as well. So there's all sorts of things going on like that. In terms of attitudes towards women, I don't think they radically change over the course of the 16th century. I think that cultural change is much slower and it takes much longer and attitudes that predate the Reformation are still in place in many ways. But that changes gradually because it's generational. And um, so you need new generations to have new ideas. But in terms of, you know, basically thinking that women are very much second-class citizens, I mean, that's still very much the case at the end of the 16th century, beginning of the 17th century. There's no radical change. In fact, if anything, things are getting worse. Patriarchy is probably intensifying. We see the passing of acts against scolds, who are women who are outspoken, basically, right. um, or cantankerous. We see acts brought in about infanticide, both in England and France. There are acts passed that if a woman who is unmarried has a child and the child is stillborn, it is presumed that she has killed the child and she no, will really? therefore be executed. Oh, wow. And, of course, we have all the witchcraft trials, which are misogyny flourishing. I mean, that's patriarchy as deeply entrenched as you can get. Mm. Is it worth exploring the witchcraft trials a bit more? Because I know very little about them, but I've heard all sorts of things about it. But I believe it was not so prevalent in Britain, in in England, was it, as in places on the continent? No, that's, broadly speaking, there's a particularly intense period in Scotland in the 1590s and in England, specifically in East Anglia and Essex in the 1640s during the Civil War. But at most, I think there's about 3,000 trials, if that, in England, if I remember correctly. Still a huge number, isn't it? Well, over 150 years, maybe not so many. Right. I don't know. And But by comparison to Germany is a real hotspot for witchcraft trials and the German territories of the Holy Roman Empire. And I'd say also places like the Duchy of Lorraine, which is now part of France, but then was sort of on the border of France and the German lands. So Switzerland, it's quite a bad place for it. Lots of places. And so there's a question about how many people are being arrested and and tried and how many people are being executed as well. It seems to be quite focused on the Northern Protestant societies. Is the sort of witchcraft fear a very Protestant kind of thing compared to the Catholic? One thinks of the Catholics and, you know, the Inquisition and all of that, but it strikes me that the witchcraft trials were largely a protestant phenomenon again i may be wrong well we see witchcraft trials in spain and we do see them in catholic german states as well as in protestant german states i think it might be fair to say that they are more northern so they're more northern european than southern european and often catholic and protestant do map onto those but not precisely and what that is about is hard to say they don't seem to be directed by protestants at catholics or catholics at protestants I think perhaps one reason that might explain them being more prevalent in what seems to be more Protestant areas would be that they come from a belief that the devil is abroad in the land, that people are living in the end days. And Protestants are particularly keen, I suppose, to see the Pope as the Antichrist and this to be the last days that they're living in, this is a sort of, you know, millenarian angst, a sense of the apocalypse. And so perhaps that increases the likelihood that they're going to see the devil at work. Right, I see. So it's all part of the mindset of the the religious authorities who are entirely male. Well, interestingly, and I think this is perhaps the most interesting thing about the witch trials, it isn't something that's carried out by religious authorities. 
Oh. The witch trials only come about because it becomes a crime under law. The trials are by secular law courts. And so it isn't something pursued by the church. Oh, I didn't know. That's fascinating. Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So it's not the church saying, witches, you must not suffer a witch to live. It's actually the secular authorities. It's a, it's a sort of panic. I mean, quite frankly, we have panics these days. You, know, you look at the past, you think, oh, aren't they silly? But quite frankly, we have an equal number of panics about certain things in our societies today, which is extraordinary to think about, but we do. And so it's a sort of societal panic by the secular authorities. Really interesting. The parallel today would be the QAnon conspiracy that, mm. you know, Hillary Clinton and, well, the Clintons generally were leading a sort of deep state, Satan worshipping, child uh, abusing cult. <laughs> so, you know, we have these beliefs that look quite similar to some of the witchcraft beliefs mm. of the 16th century still operating today. And I wonder whether historians in 400 years are going to be mapping the two and going, look, it's really weird, but it happened again and there's all this nuttery. I mean, at least there aren't court cases going on about it and, and people aren't being executed, but people are dying and people are having their lives ruined as a result of it. And the witch trials are actually on the rise across the world as a whole. There aren't witch trials going on in the global north, but there are witch trials happening all over the world in terms of places like Papua New Guinea or Nigeria or Nepal. So it is a phenomenon across the world. So it's very much a live issue. It's not a historical issue as such. It's it's a live issue today. Yes. I mean, what a witch is, how a witch is defined has changed greatly. Is very different if we're looking at 16th and 17th century Europe than if we're looking at, um, I don't know, Uganda today. But it's certainly true that people are still, and still largely women, being accused of witchcraft across the world today. So what were the general sort of accusation? I mean, accusing somebody of being a witch is quite a general term, I suppose. But were they accused of knowing too much? Or you talked about scolds and things like, you know, being too independent or outspoken? Or is it all of these components? Is it about controlling women's behaviour to a large extent? Well, it comes from a culture that is concerned with controlling women's behaviour. But as a crime under law, witchcraft was about two things as it was formulated under different laws that being passed at this time. In England, for example, the crime is maleficia, which is the practice of harmful magic. So it's doing something that will injure or damage or kill, so livestock or to damage property or to kill a human or, or an animal. But then later acts, so that's the 1542 and 1563 acts, but then the 1604 act uh, against witchcraft is also against conjuring evil spirits. So it's something a little bit more nebulous. So the conjuration itself becomes a capital crime under law as much as the practice of doing evil by magic, which had been the previous concern. So absolutely, the secular authorities believed there was magic to be done. Because obviously, if you don't believe in magic, you, you can't accuse anybody of using it. So they genuinely, or appeared to use it, maybe they didn't genuinely believe it, but um, maybe it was a fiction. But they genuinely seemed to believe in people's ability to cast magic. I think they must have genuinely believed it, yes. Mm. I think they genuinely believed it, because I think that the peak of the witch trials only occurs precisely because the elites come to believe something. I mean, you know, James VI of Scotland, later James I of England, wrote a manual for identifying witches, his demonology. So here's how you can tell a witch, here's how you treat a witch, here's what you do to get rid of them. So this is something that's 
prevalent in the highest levels of society, so much so that it is very difficult to be sceptical. There are people who are producing sceptical works at the time, but there is a there's a hostility to that. You know, the witchcraft trials happen in this moment of coincidence. And people have believed in witches for thousands of years. People believe in witches in ancient Greece. Ordinary people have pretty much always believed in witches or in magic. The key thing was that those who had the power to prosecute cases would come to believe in it to the extent that they would push that through. And so they were acting on neighbourly denunciations and accusations. And it speaks to, you know, the sort of small town village tensions and it comes out of that you have to you know it takes years to build up a reputation as a witch people have to have thought that you're a witch and behaved in cantankerous and sort of unpleasant ways for you know decades perhaps but to go from there to becoming a case at law which could end in somebody being hanged in England and burnt on the continent then you need the force of the elites and you need the force of law behind you. Are there any examples of evidence that's presented to sort of prove these cases or is it all hearsay and is there any sort of what we would consider evidence given? Well huge amounts of evidence is given and the trials that we have are full of evidence given but there are differing ideas about evidence and chiefly because at the time it is considered for example on the continent using the inquisitorial system of justice it's considered that you need two witnesses to a crime or a confession and clearly you can't have witnesses to magic. That's the thing about it, right? It's yes, yes. the devil hides it. Right. That's how they understand it at the time, right? So that it is considered by Jean Baudin, for example, who's a, a royal prosecutor in France. He writes about this and he says, well, this is a special crime because the evidence is hidden by the devil. It's invisible. So that presses on the need for confession. So this is why we end up on the continent with huge numbers of people who are accused of witchcraft being interrogated and put to the question, as it said, you know, being interrogated with the use of torture to try and extract truth from them because they believe erroneously that pain guarantees truth. And people confess to witchcraft and that is considered to be sufficient evidence. And you can see how the ideas are self-supporting, aren't they? That there isn't any actual evidence because it will be hidden by the power that's causing it. So we have to force confessions out of people. And the harder we torture them, the more likely they are to give up, you know, to tell us to stop the pain. And therefore, you know, it's circular, it reinforces. And it, we're proven, therefore, they're clearly guilty because they said they were. We have to keep doing it, keep doing it and keep doing it. Yes. And the other thing that's circular about it is that the way that questions are posed are that they tend to be questions that we would consider to be leading questions. Did you meet with the devil in the field? And were there 20 other witches? And did you kiss the devil's ass as a sign of your obeisance to him? And did you conjure storms and kill livestock? Because those are the ideas that the interrogators, members of the elite generally, have about what witches do. And the person in pain who is confused and disoriented and will you know, do pretty much anything to get the pain to stop and also has lost track of what is real and what's not real, it's probably come to believe that the scenarios that are being posed to them will say, yes, I did. And so that becomes evidence of what the witches are doing. So what witches confess tends to reflect surprisingly accurately what the interrogators thought it should do. Mm. 
is there any evidence other than that of, of people trying to do things? Do you think there is a possibility that anybody was actually trying to be malicious? Uh, it sounds to me like it's entirely fabricated, but is there ever a kernel of truth in anything that you've seen in your research at all? I think it would be highly unlikely that there weren't people who were trying to do magic. I mean, if you were downtrodden, you're among the powerless in society, why the hell would you not try and do magic against those who are more powerful than you if you thought you might have access to that? And also, I think there's something about, because there are people who confess without torture, and they tend to give us an insight into their lives, and it tends to be about you know, poverty and want and desire and hunger. And so I think some of the testimonies that we have show how those who are trying to make a pact with the devil or who are practicing magic are trying to heal or deal with very real problems in their lives. You know, the devil seems to promise them that they will never want, that they won't be hungry again. It seems to speak to those who are alone and elderly and say, we have conditions with people saying, elderly women saying the devil came and lay with me. And there's this desire that they feel guilty about and then understand that must have been something sinful about it. So it's really complex. Yes, it's really fascinating, the, the psychology of it as well. But but I also think it's quite difficult for us in the modern Western world to understand how thoroughly debilitating being hungry is and how the drive to not be hungry must have factored. I often think that's a factor in people signing up for militaries back in this period in that there's a there's a promise that you'll actually get fed and for many people that's compelling enough reason to risk your life because being hungry was a factor that would have featured in their broadly subsistence level existence beforehand and it's very powerful to think that there might be an external power that can feed you or just stop you being hungry i think that's a really good observation i don't think we can have any idea really of what people's lives were like unless we can try and grasp that reality Hmm. that people were hungry a lot of the time and that famine and dearth was the great sort of spectre haunting society and it wouldn't have been unfamiliar to almost everybody apart from at the very peak of society where i think they were probably the last people to get hungry but probably quite high up there were times when there really wasn't enough food and you would be hungry most of the time And I think we forget how powerful that emotion is. I mean, we get hungry sometimes, but we're not. We're probably peckish, but that's different. You've eaten a few hours ago. That's very different to not having eaten anything substantial for a good few days. Yes, and even so, people will ascribe to that being hungry for one meal when they've already had one or two of them in that day can be considered legitimate grounds for irritation (laughs) and anger. Yes. And actually, it's just one meal down, you know. Yeah, exactly. So you're not even actually hungry, just not full of food. It's the complete opposite. I was thinking a little bit, we've got some terrible storms coming up and a lot of people are cut off with electricity, sitting in the dark and getting a bit cold. Their heating's gone off and they're suddenly starting to feel a bit cold. But that would have absolutely been the norm for the vast bulk of history and the vast bulk of humanity in the winter. Winter was cold. And you probably wouldn't want to get into a bath because you couldn't afford to heat the water. Nor was it considered a healthy thing to do. But yes, absolutely. But what we don't know now, most of us, is how to keep a fire going. I mean, how to you know build a fire, bank it up overnight, have it ready for the next day to get going again. 
you know, that sort of thing, that you need to have ability to do that in order to keep at least one room warm so there's some place you can go. And the idea of getting up in the freezing cold, I mean, I've done it a few times when I've been camping and you get up and it's really very cold and it's very unpleasant. You don't want to get up, but you've got to. You've got to put your cold clothes on quickly and you've got to try and do something. And, you know, if you're doing things and you can light a fire, you can get warm in 20 minutes, half an hour, but you've got that horrible period when you are genuinely freezing cold. And people say, oh, you know, I'm surprised they didn't bathe more. It's like, yeah, well, bathing is different from washing. You know, you can wash with a, with a damp cloth reasonably successfully but having a shower uses a huge amount of energy and a huge amount of infrastructure plumbing electricity you just turn the tap you think nothing of it but back in the day that would have been many people's work you'd have needed servants to fill the bath for you and those servants would have been heating the water for quite a few hours and so the idea of having a hot bath especially in the early medieval period was relatively unknown. The Romans had it a bit more. The Romans obviously had their infrastructure and their slave society. But how was sort of infrastructure in the in the household in the Tudor period sort of developing? Was there more internal plumbing and you know were things getting a bit more recognizable as modern or was it still really quite basic by our modern standards? For those at the royal levels of society, we do have the beginnings of running water. There are various systems built to furnish water to the king's palaces. But for the vast majority of people, they're going and washing their clothes in the local pond. And certainly there's no thought of heating water except perhaps for eating. The vast majority of people washed, in fact, I'd say pretty much everybody washed by rubbing themselves down with their linen smock. The question was whether they were rich enough to have another one or not. (laughs) It's so hard, I think, for us to understand what it's like to have so much easily and relatively cheaply. Multiple pairs of trousers, multiple shirts, and an ability just to turn the tap and have hot water on demand is broadly miraculous and an awful lot more than even the King of England would have had back in Tudor times. That's right. Most of us today live as monarchs 500 years ago can only have dreamt of living. It's extraordinary. Well, that's a lovely place to end it, actually. Uh, It's been absolutely fascinating. Was there anything else you wanted to cover in particular? No, I'm very happy just to meander through history with you. It's been a lovely lovely journey. Great. Well, thank you very much for for sharing your time with us. I find it fascinating. I think I have to make a bit more effort to learn about the Tudors, um, partly because for me, knights in armour, guns start to come on the battlefield and, and sort of spoil the knights in armour's fun and ordinary yes, people can yeah. hold a gun and point it at the nobility and yeah, kill Yeah, yeah, the first gun crime in London was 1536. Right, um, brilliant. <laughs> um, wow. So somebody went, oh, newfangled thing, I can use it for crime. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you very much, Susanna. I really appreciate it. Lovely to meet you as well. Lovely to meet you too. I really enjoyed that. Thank you. Hold up. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.